Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruskin. I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action, and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We have a full panel this week, and it's actually a larger panel uh, of Citizen Action staff here at the Battleground Wisconsin. And uh, we're going to have a deep dive conversation and talk about what has been going on around uh, the response in our country to the murder of George Floyd. With that, I want to introduce everyone who is with us. We have, uh, as usual, Claire Zauke is with us, our healthcare director. Claire, good to have you. Good morning. Thank you, Matt. And Robert Craig also is with us, our executive director. Good day, everyone. And we're glad to welcome back (laughs) Joanna Bausch, who is our movement politics director here at Citizen Action. Joanne, it's great to have you on the podcast. Hey, Matt. Hi, everybody. Good to be here. And we're thrilled to welcome Raphael Smith, Citizen Action's climate and equity director. Raphael, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And uh, what's up, everybody? So we wanted to start this podcast by giving every one of our panelists, uh, who has been obviously like everyone, alive, uh, deeply engaged in what's been going on. And I wanted to give you all an opportunity just to take a minute and give us your initial sort of responses to what's been going on and and in particular, how it's impacted you uh, directly. Let's just say this is an absolutely historic moment in our country. And I want to start with uh, our guests. Um, Joanna, I'm going to give you the first opportunity to talk about to talk about how this how how this you've been experiencing this. Yeah, so I think that like most you know people of color, I'm outraged. Um, I am trying to be intentional about this being um, an opportunity for us to come together, but for us also to lift up our black brothers and sisters. Right, this is a time to center black voices. This is a time for us to rally behind our Black communities, our Black friends and family, um, and just to show our solidarity and support. Um, It angers me to uh, not see my other fellow Milwaukeeans following suit and, um, you know, just being there in solidarity. And, um, yeah, I mean, I know that there's a lot of young people out there leading the charge, and that makes me so happy. You know, we were talking a little bit earlier about... Um, some of us being a little bit considered old to be at protests, but, um, you know, it, it makes my heart happy to see folks out there that are younger than me, people that I, <clears throat> I keep seeing people that are my age, my friends saying, man, I didn't recognize any faces out there. And that makes me so happy. Like, I'm glad they didn't recognize anybody. Cause that means we're bringing in a fresh new crowd, a fresh new wave of leaders in Milwaukee. And that's the best thing that we could be doing right now is bringing up new leadership. Yeah, and we will definitely talk more about that later in the show. Uh, But with that, I want to give Rafael, you an opportunity uh, to give us your response. Yeah, it's hard, really hard to put it into words, man. It's like, it's a mix of a lot of things, inspired, tired, you know, inspired by what Joanna just talked about, which is seeing all the young folks out there. I've been to, I've been going to protests since, I would say, 2008. And usually it is the same crowd. And now I am not seeing anyone who I saw for the protest in 2014, 2015. And that's a beautiful thing. I'm tired. I'm just tired of being here because I've been doing this for a while. And we keep on doing the same thing. And it's 
no solution yet. You know, uh, it's been my whole life. I was thinking about this last night. I was born in 85 and 92. We had Rodney King. You know, I spent my whole life watching black men either beat, murdered, brutalized black men and black women. Shout out to Breonna Taylor family, Aubrey, Aubrey Abraham. So for me, it's it's tiring, but also inspiring. I think this is a different moment. I think this moment is different. When I see out there, it's genuine outrage. It's not people there for a photo shoot. It's not people there just to say I was there. It's people really are pissed off. So for me, you know, it's a mixed emotions, but I'm just so glad it's happening right now. You know, yeah. Claire, as, uh, as as I imagine, um, most folks who are living, at least um, I would, I hope most folks who are living through this moment um, recognize this feels like a um, this feels like a historic um, moment that we're we're witnessing play out. Um, this uh, this this travesty the, the this huge injustice, the murder of George Floyd, and um, the the uh, the other murders of of black men and women in rapid succession over the past few weeks, um, whether by um, officers or um, I hate to call people who are not officers civilians because officers are civilians too; they're not members of the military, even though we treat them as though they are such, and we are seeing them behave as such, but um, People who don't wear badges, I'll say, um, taking um, taking illegal um, action uh, is what I'll say instead. Um, you know, certainly those are not um, you know his historic moments in the sense that they are unique moments. As, you know, as as Raphael mentioned, are things that have been happening for a long time. Um, but but having but having these um, unjust deaths, these murders happen in such rapid succession um, is is something, and watching it play out um, has been on this way really, really heavily um, on my heart. And um, seeing people being willing to come together and um, stand um, stand stand in unity to um, for what's right um, at a time when for months and months we've been telling folks it's not safe to be outside is, is it can be scary, but it's also really inspiring because it shows that we aren't going to let, or that the, that the community isn't going to, isn't going to let these um, injustices stand and that there are things that are worth, um, that are worth fighting for. So um, my, my, my heart's been heavy, but my heart's also been um, inspired by the um, by this the sense of of just doing what's right and standing up for what's right that that I've seen play out across our country um, and in particularly in our state and in my my hometown. Robert. So, part of me, the analytic movement side, is excited because this is the true multiracial movement and tons and tons of people we've never seen before active, just shocked who turned out for the huge Bayview March in my neighborhood to the Milwaukee administration building and beyond. 
uh, and people who know everyone in the movement, like Jonathan Brostoff, the state rep, had not seen ever before 98% of the people out there packing the streets, going blocks on end. Uh, and the fact that the polling indicates this isn't yet 1968, that all the movement building, all of the racial justice organizing has paid off to the point where this is landing differently on the public and the right is on the defensive. So there's that kind of, boy, this is a great moment out of a tragedy, can't get over what, and will never get over what was done to George Floyd and to all of the other names we've come to know over the last decade. But then I'm humble as a white leader because I'm very aware that we will never, as white leaders, white people in the United States, ever to be able to understand what it is to be a person of color your whole life in this country, like Joanna and Rafi do and live every day. And we can get closer in our journey. We can read. We can have relationships with people like Rafi and Joanna and learn or with the great people of color board members that we have on both boards at Citizen Action. I mean, I've you know read and taken in. Michelle Alexander, uh, Ibram Kendi, Isabel Wilkinson, other great uh, uh, writers from who are people of color on what's going on. But I realize there'll always be a remove and no white person can say they get it. They understand fully. And so I'm trying really to be open and understanding and be a good ally rather than uh, this kind of white temptation to say I'm the woke white and therefore I'm totally, I totally understand. We will never fully understand. We can just get closer. And it's a journey and a process. And so I'm trying to keep that in mind. I would say, you know, you look at what is, what makes a difference? Because I think everybody around here probably has been at a protest or something going on, at least for the last decade. I mean, you can talk about the occupation of the state house, Occupy Milwaukee, Black Lives Matter. What I see is different is the energy. I mean, think about it. This has been going on for a week, you know. I was there during the uprising in 2016, and I watched the first two days. The energy was incredible. Then it's in the pastors and the politicians, and, you know, and all that energy just went away, right? It dissipated. And here, you know, they try to throw everything at it. You know, they try to throw the military, the police force. They try to demonize it and stigmatize it, and it's not going away. And that's real outrage, right? That's people are really tired of it. We're talking about the young people. You got to think about if I'm a 19-year-old, I mean, my most formative years, I have watched Trayvon Martin killer get away. I've watched Mike Brown killers get away, Sandra Bland, right? And they're tired of seeing it. And they see the hypocrisy in America, right? They see it. They see it and they feel it. And that's what, for me, that's what's different. That's what I see. It's like, no, nah, I'm not here for all your propaganda and your games and all your suppression and your repression. We're going to get what we want, our demands of black lives, black injustice. And we want justice for Floyd, but we want justice for every person. And uh, it comes across. Go ahead, Matt. And with that, we're going to have to take a quick break. But on the back end of this break, I want to continue the conversation on what you brought up, both the young folks, the, the, the people that are leading this. And also, I want us to have a conversation about what are some of the things that actually need to happen, right? Action is, is, is going to be critical. And just I want to make sure we do have a conversation and get everyone's thoughts on what they think is critical uh, to make this change. But with that, you're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to The Battleground Wisconsin. 
We're having a great conversation here. And before we left, we were talking about, Raphael was talking about uh, all the people and uh, that are coming out that we, we haven't seen in the moment. And I wanted to pick that up and, and talk about uh, how we're seeing the, the leadership that is, is, is coming out of this uh, and get folks' comments on that. And then also how that leadership uh, with existing leadership is critical that we come together and start thinking about what are the real actions that need to start coming out of this and that are boiling up. So who would like to go first? Yeah, I just think, I just wanted to say one, first off of like what Raphael was saying about the momentum being there and it really not dying down. Um, you know, and, and I think we see that too, because these protests that are continued to being, that are continuously being organized and put on throughout the city and throughout the state for that matter, are not backed by organizations. Um, they're these are regular people that are done. They're over it. These are regular people that are that don't do nonprofit work on you know Monday through Friday or whatever. You know they don't um, do this on the regular basis. They weren't doing this six months ago. Um, they just something in them broke and they are done and they are ready to create action even if they've never done it before and maybe they don't know what it's look like what it looks like but they're doing a great job. And so I just wanted to speak to that momentum and how we know that this is something new because of things, signs like that, right? That these are being organized by just regular people of Milwaukee, of Wisconsin. And so as far as like actions, you know, we're having these conversations all the time, right? Like, what do we need to do right now? What are some immediate actions, right? Like, how can we continue the peaceful protest without there being, you know, people getting harmed and, I think that that falls on the side of law enforcement, right? Like, why aren't they allowing this to happen? Why aren't they allowing us to peaceful protest? Like, what is the big deal? What's like, why are they bringing the violence with, you know, their rubber bullets and their tear gas? Um, and then there's the long-term work that needs to be done to um, start the healing process and also prevent us from being in these situations going forward, right? Things like divesting the police budget and putting money towards community-based um, resources, community-based um, community programming, things that can help our young people so that they don't get to, you know, so that they don't get to a position where they're facing options that can put them in, you know, our criminal justice system. Because Lord knows, once you get in that, there's no coming out. When you uh, look at George Floyd, I think he was 46 years old. And we, we talk about the end of his life, right, and how tragic that was, right? And definitely was tragic, and, it was, and you know, worst name to speak. But I'm pretty sure he, was, he died a thousand deaths before he was actually murdered. The school system probably failed him, right? The criminal justice probably failed him, right? The economic system probably failed him long before his final death. So I think when we talk about what's next, right, we got to talk about those, too. We got to talk about, like, I don't think you can call yourself a serious or a nonprofit social justice organization if you're not talking about calling on the police to divest from their budget. You, you can't call yourself serious, you know? That's the least, right? And we got to get serious about living wage jobs. You got to get serious about improving our school system and getting funding to our school system. We can't just focus on... Uh, 
police brutality, right? Because, you know, we, yes, police brutality, we must end police brutality. We've got to get rid of it. We've got to stop. we got to, my own personal opinion, must abolish the police, right? That's how I feel. That's my personal belief. But we also got to make sure the little mini deaths that people experience in their lifetimes, we put an end to too as well, right? So um, for me, I think right now, the thing, and I, I was lift up Marquesia Tucker at the African American Roundtable and Liberate MKE and the work they did last year, calling on the divestment from the police budget. I think if you're really serious about making an impact and you really think about next steps, you can't really call yourself serious if you're not talking about divesting from the police budget. Claire, I saw you had your hand up. I've been trying to decide if this is something I wanted to talk about. Um, and I think maybe this is an okay moment um, because I've been thinking a lot about why it's so hard to hold um, the police accountable for, for huge injustices, for, for murders of the people that they're supposed to be protecting. Um, and it's, um, you know, we talk a lot in the healthcare world um, about the system being rigged against patients in the United States because it's a for-profit system and everybody gets their cut and it's really hard to reform just one piece of the, of the healthcare system because everything is so wholly integrated um, with itself and, and so you need to just like dismantle the system as a whole. Um, and I think that that is an apt um, analogy in a lot of ways to how the police system um, is set up in the United States. And I've been struggling with trying to identify and figure out what all of these different pieces are. And Matt, you're not going to be surprised. I was listening to um, a few episodes up behind on the New York Times Daily podcast. And earlier this week, so we're taping on Thursday, so earlier this week, I think it was maybe Tuesday, June 2nd, um, they did an episode um, exactly this topic about why it's hard to hold the police accountable for their own actions. And they identified a few pieces that I think that demonstrate that the police system um, that is built to protect police officers is similar to the healthcare system that's built to protect profit. And they identified a few components that I think are relevant to um, Wisconsin. And I think this might be helpful for folks, especially white folks, who think of things in the terms of, of systems about, you know, when we hear folks, especially folks of color, say, you know, we need to dismantle and reform the justice system, quote unquote justice system, or the police system, to understand, like, really think about how many things are stacked against actual justice. Um, when it comes to holding the police accountable. And a few of those things that are relevant um, to that they talked about that I, I think we're sharing are, um, you know, one, um, police unions. And this can be hard to talk about because as citizen action and as progressives, we often are usually are like very supportive of unions. And so it's hard sometimes to, to talk about challenging a union. Um, but when you have a union like um, the police, what often happens with police unions, but they're fighting for um, employees, which is the purpose of a union. Um, but sometimes that's, that's counter to our greater values as progressives and it's just as citizens of the world that we should want to protect the lives of folks, right? And so um, so one factor that, that um, this analyst of the New York Times identified that makes it a challenge is, is unions because they'll fight to get folks reinstated who should be laid off. Um, 
Another issue is that police are often in charge of policing themselves through internal affairs division. So instead of having outside um, folks come in and hold them accountable, um, they're being um, investigated and um, uh, decide whether folks should be charged or have action taken against them often by folks that maybe they went to the academy with or folks that they've been friends with and been hanging out with, right? Folks who um, are, you know, can can be biased in their thinking because they're putting themselves in the shoes of the officer instead of in the shoes of the community members who are affected, right? And so, again, that's another component of this system that um, is biased towards protecting officers instead of um, putting themselves in the shoes of community members often. Um, they, um, this, this, they also talked a lot about um, how in many states um, there's this idea of like reasonable fear, so it can be really hard to prosecute um, uh, uh, police officers, um, and often prosecutors will be um, hesitant because um, for some reason there's this like esoteric legal idea that police officers have to make split-second decisions and don't have time to um, to think about um, what they're doing because there's this, like, reasonable concept of fear in their job. Um, and that is, again, like, part of the legal system that is built if that is, like, another component that protects police officers instead of community members. And we know that we're hearing from, you know, Raphael and Joanna Speak saying that, like, that's like this idea of like fear is like something that regular people where people of color often have to deal with their entire lives, right? But instead it's like a component that's built into checking police officers. So I know I've been talking for a while, there's like more I could talk about, including um, like systems that are built in place that make it hard for reform-minded police chiefs and prosecutors who come in that make it hard for them to like do their jobs because decisions that they make to, to lay off um, police officers often get reversed. The system itself is a system, and that that system itself is not always built to protect community members. It is often built to protect um, police officers. With that, we're going to take a break here at the Battleground, Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. Robert, right before uh, you were going to speak, but we had to go to break, uh, I want to give you an opportunity uh, to continue the conversation. I want to pick up what Rafi said and what Claire really elaborated as far as the system. And Rafi kind of let it off in the last segment by saying policing is a huge part of it, but it's not the whole thing. That a whole system failed George Floyd his whole life. And so we have to ultimately deal with the economy. And I would say, and I know Rafi believes this because on Green New Deal issues, because of that, because we've been building out a Milwaukee program, Rafi and I are thought partners on this, uh, over-policing has to do with a system that has decided that we're going to lock in place historical racial inequality. If you're going to pack people in segregated neighborhoods, who don't have nearly the resources or privileges of anyone else and pack them together, then yeah, uh, and they're going to be huge amount of people who are, who are not employed or, or li literally don't can't get anything but non-living wage jobs, then you are going to have a situation where to tramp it down, you need to go and police it with an outside force. And these outside forces, I can tell you in Milwaukee, uh, once you allowed them to live outside the city, 
how these white police officers have run out to Walker's base, Scott Walker's base in Waukesha County and other and other excerpts, right? So that tells you it's an outside occupying force in many ways, despite the fact it's not all police officers, it's not the officers of color who are part of their communities, but there's a huge uh, segment of that. And so we need to deal with the really hard thing, the economy. And when you start talking about resources in the U.S. and changing who has them and changing economic structures, that's where the conversation ends. And I think if we're starting with policing, and I agree with Barack Obama, who, to my mind, um, was a disappointment on these issues, but has an incredible voice and is lending himself to it right now. And I just say that for myself. Others might have a different perspective on President Obama. Um, but this week, he has really started coming out, and he's pointed out state and local level have the most impact on policing. We're starting with policing and criminal justice. And so when you talk to mayors, and frankly, it's white mayors, but it's also a lot of people of color mayors and city council, common council, county board members, they tell you all the constraints. They tell you how strong the police union is. They tell you the public wants more police. And therefore, the lion's share of the resources go partly to police and not to what's needed, not to need all these police, right? Not to the actual core of the issue and not to the health disparities, which are driving the pandemic, right? And the horrendous and awful racial disparities and who lives and who dies. So the way to think about it, because I said that we as white allies can never quite experience it the way Rafi and Joanna so eloquently put it, and any other person of color who's lived in America, right? Or other countries, because it's not only America, uh, is to think about George Floyd and think about, try to get as close as possible. I've done this reading Rayford, Aust uh, Rayford Logan's brilliant book, The Betrayal of the Negro, a pathfinding uh, breaking history from the 50s and 60s of racism in America after the Civil War. If you read about lynchings, it's you can get close. You can imagine what if this was my uncle or my father or me, and how would my family react, right? You can try to get closer, but it's not like your George Floyd's brother or his mother, right? But you can try to get closer and then apply that emotion to the question of nothing's possible, we'll have to wait, we have too many fiscal constraints, all the reasons local elected officials tell you they can't take fundamental action on policing and the criminal justice system and all the things that they have the power to change. They have the power, they just don't feel like they can use it because it's hard, or they think it's not politically possible or they'll lose their office. That doesn't compare to what it feels like to be George Floyd on the ground at that moment, begging for to, to be allowed to breathe, or his family members or the members of his community who knew him and loved him. It's not so try to get as close as possible and then apply that to what we need to do in terms of action. So I want to get real specific. Um, we have talked, come up now multiple times here about removing money from the police department. Um, two things that I want to mention. Uh, it was announced by uh, Mayor Garcetti in Los Angeles that he is going to uh, look to pull at least 100 to $150 million, uh, from the L.A. Police Department and put them in to other services like Joanna was talking about earlier. And I also want to mention here at home in Milwaukee and here in Wisconsin, 
uh, the African-American Roundtable, which was referenced earlier uh, in a plan uh, that that has been signed on uh, by more than 50 community groups. We are, we are a part of that. We're calling for uh, $75 million to be removed from the police budget. This is something very real. Um, and I think whose time has come to have this conversation, it is worth pointing out in the city of Milwaukee, the police are 47% of the budget. It's a significant uh, amount of the budget. And to have a conversation, I think it's an important conversation uh, because one other thing that we haven't mentioned, and it's just, it's so obvious, and you see this playing out here in Milwaukee in the protests is the police are militarized. They're, they're, They're not really set up like police anymore. They have equipment and everything that almost demands and sets up a, a this a, a, you know not to actually be a part of the community uh, and that's been happening for decades uh, and has gotten worse uh, with a lot of the toys and equipment that were bought under the terrorism in 9/11 that's been going on for decades um, and so like not only do we have a, a, like what often ends up feeling like an occupying force, uh, they're militarized. And so I think this is brought to a head, this conversation, and kudos to the African-American Roundtable and everyone for their leadership on trying to drive that debate here. And I want to get this panel's response uh, to that and something very concrete like that and or any other uh, policies or thoughts folks have specifically about this issue. I'll throw it open to the panel. Yeah, definitely, right? Like, we cannot just call for um, the divestment of the police without an action plan, right? I think, and I be- and I believe that the African American Roundtable has, are moving in the right direction, right? Like, they're talking about putting money towards cooperative housing, right? We know that communities thrive when there are homeowners, and this, and cooperative housing is an opportunity for uh, that to be a reality, for more people to be able to invest in ownership not just the continued cycle of renting. Um, And so, yeah, and then um, one thing that Raphael and I talk about that he is constantly advocating for is community centers, right? Like the power that comes from collectiveness and community is um, indescribable. We know that children need to be raised by a village, right? Like we know that the input of all the different perspectives is, is what really um, gives our young people the opportunities to thrive um, and to live their best lives. And so, um, yeah, I think that taking money from our police department uh, and putting it towards things like cooperative housing, community centers, you know, public health is what we need to really invest in. And I think that, um it's not happening, and I think that that has a lot to do with education, right? Like, I work on a, on political campaigns, right? I work with candidates all the time, and uh, elected officials talk about how their constituents are not telling them that they want less police, right? Like, they're telling them, I want safe neighborhoods. And for those constituents, those regular people that are living in our neighborhoods uh, think that safe neighborhoods means more police because police in our minds is supposed to mean safety. Um, But the reality is for a lot of people, for a lot of communities of color, police doesn't equal safety. And I think that we need to talk about 
that more, right? We need to talk about, we need to educate, you know, our white counterparts. We need to educate everybody on how we can create safety without police, how police are not the end all be all of safety. Um, and so like just really diving into what that means. And, you know, we talked about it earlier, right? When we talk about long-term solutions, it's having a livable wage, right? It's so our, so people like me don't have to grow up in a single parent household where their mother is working, you know, two, three jobs and me and my siblings are like taking care of ourselves, right? We're letting ourselves in after school. We're getting on each other to do homework. We're watching the younger sibling. Um, you know, we're doing all those things because our parents, you know, want to be able to buy a box of macaroni and cheese. Um, right. So like, what are the real issues? Um, right. Public education. Um, you know, we need to make sure that our, all schools are, all public schools are, are, are funded, are fully funded and, and providing the education and the environment that all of our kids need to be successful. There's so many things. It goes deep. Y'all know well, Joanna, I think you actually raised one of the critical issues, right? And that is this perception that police equals safety or more police equals safety. And that is quite frankly, one of the big organizing uh, opportunities of this moment is I think people are re rethinking that assessment and that calculus. And I think that's one of the critical sort of hurdles that we have always faced in trying to reduce police departments. So I think you're a hundred percent on and, and, and the honest truth about how, a lot of communities respond to that, especially politicians, and politicians respond to that. And so that is one of the critical opportunities, I think, looking forward. The success of, quote, moving money out of police budgets is going to determine and how we're successful we are at getting people to understand that that is not equated with more safety. I think you hit the nail on the head. And so with that, though, we are going to have to take a break. Uh, when we get back, Robert and Claire will be able to respond. Uh, you are listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. And again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. I wanted to give both Robert and Claire an opportunity to respond. Robert, why don't you go first? So I don't want to repeat what what others have said. And I think uh, the incredible insights of Joanna and Rafi on this episode uh, show you the critical importance of a multiracial perspective, not just right. As brilliant as this panel always is on it in its usual uh, course of events. So I would just pick up on the public safety piece of what Joanna said and Matt uh, picked up on at the end of the last segment. Uh, when we got really deep into the criminal justice issue for about a year and a half, and I learned a ton about it, there was a lot of national meetings. Uh, really, that is the key. This notion the public has that, gee, I feel unsafe, let's have more police. And the fact that that's being the change by the way, that's true with a lot of progressive people, a lot of people of color. It's not every person of color who fully – because we haven't given them an alternative, okay? That's been repeated over and over and over again since the 60s, and that was a way to 
put back in a box the Black Liberation Movement, which was threatening to whites and caused a backlash from at least half of the white population, the part that went to Richard Nixon and became the modern Republican Party. And so policing was the alternative to the reforms, the economic redistribution, because that's what it is that is required. And so we need to capitalize on that and build it. It means as this evolves and as we listen to each other and especially listen to people of color who have lived this all our lives, we figure out how we're going to keep public safety at the center and then how we are going to have a clear message and clear policy that clearly creates a new common sense about what public safety is. And we just have to be, no one can say this. Robert can't say, oh, this is what it has to be and the other doesn't work. But we've got to, as a movement, develop the capacity to make sure we're building up the idea that public safety is all the things we actually have to do to create equality and not policing mass incarceration where we are still incarcerating per capita more people than any uh, democracy as ever has in the history of the world. And we didn't do start doing that until after the 1960s. So you don't have to do that. Uh, we need to uh, we need to, to, to put this all around public safety, and we need to do it step by step in a way that always improves that common sense and always, frankly, improves public safety. Because at the end of the process, we'll have more public safety. The danger is, you know, whenever there's a crime spike, they're going to say, see, it's because we don't have police. And so we have to be resilient and ready to take that on and to have both short term and the ultimate fundamental solutions that we need to get to. I wanted to, before we go to Claire, just let our listeners know that unfortunately Raphael had to drop off. He had an emergency to attend to, but just wanted to let everybody know uh, why you haven't heard from Raphael in a little bit. Uh, uh, but with that, Claire, I wanted to give you an opportunity to respond. Yeah, I think Robert provided a great analysis, so um, I won't try to uh, duplicate anything that he said. Um, the only thing I'll add is that I, I I'm glad that I'm seeing more that in the past, um, white folks um, trying to learn about um, allyship in this moment and um, participating in um, protests and, and um, using their voices um, on and off of, more importantly, social media um, to uh, try to try to be supportive of the movement in this moment. Um, but I think that it's easy it's easy to do that when there is a big, exciting, um, uh, sort of momentous series of protests that that you know are going into their second week and the energy is really high. Um, but where the um, where our resolve is going to be the most um, uh, strained and um, where real allyship is going to be the most important is going to be in fighting um, once the sort of um, energy and positive media attention and everything has gone away uh, when, we're, when we're fighting on uh, in boardrooms and on council floors and on um, legislative, in legislative sessions, right? Um, when we're actually trying to pass policy changes um, that, will, that will make this, these changes that we need to see, right? Um, and so I, I I want folks to be um, prepared to support and pressure elected officials and appointed officials to 
to do the right thing, supporting platforms. Um, one of the reasons why Joanna's work as the movement politics director is so important um, that um, we need to be not just um, centering the voices of leaders of color in, in these movements um, and giving recognizing um, their national role as, as leaders of, of protests and whatnot, but um, also um, sort of the rightful place as um, legislative leaders um, and elected officials and um, in, in, in districts where, you know, it may not be as popular to support uh, what we know is right. Um, as, as white folks, we need to um, be playing that, playing that role. Um, and and that that is going to be a much much longer process than however long these protests take. Um, so I want folks, especially white folks, to be to be thinking about that as an important, appropriate next step, so that we are um, emotionally prepared um, and heartened um, and ready for that challenge when it arises. And I say that as somebody who's like a policy wonk and a progressive um, and as a pragmatist. And I know that sometimes pragmatism is not like the sexiest thing um, in the progressive movement. Um, but the pragmatist in me is like, this is going to be a hard fought battle um, when it comes to enacting policy reforms that are important. And we, and we got to be prepared for that, man. Thank you, Claire. Uh, Joanne, I want to give you an opportunity to uh, have further comments. Yeah, um, I just want to lift up something Robert said um, about having these conversations of public safety and that more police don't always equal safety and alternatives to policing, um, you know, with com real community-based solutions. And I just want to absolutely say that those conversations are necessary within our POC communities as well. Speaking as a Latina woman, um, I know my Latino community needs to have these conversations still. I know we're not fully there yet, all of us. Um, and so just wanted to say that too and just lift that up that uh, I'm, I'm being intentional about having those conversations because I know that it's necessary. Um, and that's what we are, I think the base of the movement um, starts with all of us doing that, right? Challenging one another to talk to our own people, to check our own people, to educate our own people. Those are our responsibilities. Those are all of our responsibilities, right? Like I constantly am seeing posts on social media like, you know, don't beat yourself up if you are not built to be on the front lines, right? Like, and that's absolutely true. There are so many ways that you can help push the movement forward. Um, and one of the most um, important ones and ones that we completely have 100% power in is the conversations that we have with our people, the folks that we're kicking it with, the folks that we're having regular everyday conversations with. And so, yeah, I just wanted to say that and um, I'll see y'all on the movement. Let's do this. That was beautiful, Joanna. Robert, I don't know if you have any final thoughts. I couldn't agree more with Joanna that obviously there are also a ton of <laughs> And it's more of them, white folks, who think policing always makes more safety. But, yeah, I know African-American rank-and-file folks, like union members, who make the same assumption. It's not because they, they're wrong, they did anything wrong. That's all they've heard. So our movement needs to get really clear on what, like, we know, we think we know what alternative policing mean. I don't think they do. They don't 
think they're evidence-based. They, they might think it sounds just like talk and they're going to be left unsafe, right? So we've got to drive home not only that, but that we're unsafe because of, of uh, forced segregation. We're unsafe because of economic inequality. We're unsafe in Milwaukee because half of working age African-American men are not employed because they lack opportunities or they are for many of them disproportionately or formally incarcerated because mass incarceration, which means they're second class citizens even more than other uh, persons of color in this society. Right. It's a uh, Michelle Alexander calls it a caste system. Uh, and so you, you give them nothing in jail. You lock them up for things white people wouldn't be locked up for. You bring them back with no skills and you and they have no opportunity and things are supposed to go well. Right. I mean, it's unbelievable. If you think about it, the system produces at the end what it's designed to produce. And I just want to call on white progressives to try to get as close as possible to what it would be like to be George Floyd. You'll never be there. OK, or be his brother or his mother or any family member or someone who went to school with him or lived on his block, knew him, right? And how you'd feel and apply that to our conversations with our members, your family and elected leaders as far as the artificial constraints we put on ourselves. This is all possible. Everything we want to do is possible. There's no barrier other than us. You take all the money in criminal justice, we have the money to, to create a great society. We just refuse. The only barrier we have is this show has to end at 44 minutes. And it's unfortunate because this was a great conversation. And I uh, really appreciate everyone's uh, you know thought and insight on this. This is an incredibly uh, challenging and historic time. And it's, it's, a, it's a horrible mix of pain, painful, but also there's opportunity um, and folks, we need to be involved. Please get out this weekend. Please get out, get involved in your community. There are activities everywhere. We are going to do our best at Citizen Action to make as many of them public, but please get involved, stand up. And with that, we want to thank Raphael Smith uh, for joining us, Joanna Bouch for joining us. Thank you, Joanna. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We'll see you next week. <laughs>